So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Okay, I did too. Um, welcome to Feature Creep, colon. Built-in microwave, semicolon. <laughs> <laughs> we have such a long title, I never remember what part of it we're at. Yeah, um, harm reduction. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, harm reduction, which is fucking awesome. And Okay, but first of all, there's some. I want to lay some rules down on this. Um, I feel like we've mm. veered away from our art and design um, category, and so we need to put everything in the context of art and design. Okay, well that should be easy because I actually had this like total breakthrough. <laughs> awesome. I had like a like a psycho like a an intellectual <laughs> educational breakthrough. So like an epiphany, I, uh, kind of like an epiphany, except I didn't burst into flames. Oh. Okay. So it's pro- it's probably not quite as impressive as an epiphany. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Think like a couple of pegs down from epiphany. Um, so I was reading yesterday. I let some of my homework go till the day that it was due, which it, like is fine. Yeah. But um, I wish I'd started earlier because I'm really actually interested in the two article or the two texts the philosophical texts that we had to read for class yeah um one of which we may not even get to talking about but the first of which is from a philosopher named shannon day i think is d-e-a is the last name okay uh-huh. uh, only seen it in print never heard it pronounced so um what shannon day said was uh that there is a a real dearth of philosophical literature on the topic of harm reduction, which I found shocking. Um, and the author says that, uh, like only a little bit of harm reduction philosophy has begun to emerge. And it's kind of, I think that's kind of nuts because like one of the principal concerns of ethics is harm. (laughs) Right. And so how <clears throat> philosophy has managed to talk about harm for the last 30 years without mentioning harm reduction seems fucking batshit to me. Um, but lots of things in philosophy seem batshit to me. Yeah. And um, I think I may have found my niche. Yeah. So like what's really interesting to me about this is that um, like harm reduction started as a field methodology in medicine to yes. address the AIDS crisis mm-hmm. effectively. Um, so while I was like running around in third grade, people were developing uh, a practical set of instructions and, and protocols and practices around harm reduction. But like nobody in philosophy has developed a philosophy of harm reduction. Right. Um, and like, this seems nuts to me because like that's really behind the ball i wonder i kind of wonder what the fuck is going on in philosophy because like sometimes it just doesn't seem to be (laughs) useful yeah uh so anyway this author says that 
more philosophers should theorize about harm reduction for three main reasons. One is that philosophers can transcend typical domains of practice. And so uh, we're, like uh, philosophers are kind of like super spreaders of ideas. Like mm -hmm. you can take an idea you heard in one place and because you're not chained to a particular set of rules or practices within a specific field professionally, you can export and spread around stuff that is interesting and useful and you can write about why it's interesting and useful in order to spread it around. And that's kind of like the role that philosophers pay, play. And there's like a lot of room for philosophers in other cultures. In America, we don't really listen to them very much. Um, yeah. We only listen to MBAs because we're stupid. Yes. <laughs> don't get an MBA if you're listening to this. I'm not please. even sure for we listen to MBAs. God. I'm pretty sure we just let them drive, drive shit around. Yeah, it's like with a blindfold on. Yeah. Um. So philosophers can transcend individual and typical domains of practice. Philosophers' work would be better informed if they had access to the health and social sciences um, because a lot of philosophy doesn't really interact with the real world. It's like esoteric and abstracted. And um, currently all of the philosophical, well, not all, but a lot of the philosophical writing on harm reduction uses examples of disabled people which is also fucked up like it's insufficient for the conversation and also it's like whose idea was it to make disability the go-to for harm reduction conversations like that's fucked up right. but i'll also say that there's a lot of fucked up sexist men in philosophy who didn't let anybody besides white men in on the conversation for a very 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 long time and the natural result of that is that the profession has basically driven itself into the ground in obsolescence in America. Mm -hmm. And that should probably change. So the third reason that Deus suggests that philosophers should study and write and develop a philosophy of harm reduction is that uh, harm reduction interventions at this point are enacted on a global scale. Uh -huh. like they're ubiquitous. Yeah. And so philosophers have better fucking pay attention to that. Right. Right. So... <clears throat> Anyway, I was reading this and I was just utterly shocked by the lack of interest in this subject in philosophy. And so I'm kind of thinking maybe I'm going to do something about it. That's fun. Um, yeah. So what I found really interesting about this particular text that I was reading yeah. is that there's a philosopher whose last name is Benatar who is a natalist. Anti-natalist, an uh -huh. anti-natalist. Do you know what that is? Um, I, I think inherently I had an idea of what this was, but I've never heard that term before. And when you told me about it the other day, I was like, "Oh, I get that. I might." So there. <laughs> I, I I have. I, I want to preface this discussion with like I definitely have a lot of um. Like I would definitely say that I really relate to a lot of the ideas that we're about to discuss here. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So, um, so the deal with uh, David Benatar is that he, <laughs> the New Yorker said, David Benatar might be the world's most pessimistic philosopher. <laughs> An antinatalist, he believes that life is so bad, so painful, that human beings should stop having children for reasons of compassion. And I am on board with this idea. Right. Uh, quote, while good people go to great lengths to spare their children from suffering... Few of them seem to notice that the one and only guaranteed way to prevent all the suffering of all of the children is not to bring those children into existence in the first place. Right. 
Uh, and he wrote that in a 2000 book titled Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. Uh, in Benatar's view, producing, reproducing the is in reproducing sexual reproduction of human beings is intrinsically cruel and irresponsible, not just because a horrible fate can befall anyone, but because life itself is permeated by badness. Yeah. And life would be a better place. The world would be a better place if life, sentient life, disappeared altogether. Um, so that's interesting because that gets brought up in this article. Yeah. Or the, I'm sorry, this philosophical text that I was reading from Dea about harm reduction. So I'll just tell you, like, <clears throat> um, I I want to definitely say, like, I want to preface this with um, the idea that this isn't to say that uh, I don't appreciate and enjoy children, like, or that I'm somehow like a baby hater. Do you know what I mean? You fucking baby hater. Like this is definitely like a more of a philosophical like I don't I, I I feel like this easily slips into the discussion of like well all humanity is bad therefore it should be terminated. Like mm. and I don't think that's quite the same No, we should just stop making more of ourselves for a little while. Possibly yeah, forever. Possibly forever. <laughs> okay um yeah i mean also that isn't to condemn people who want to have children like it's 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 just it's i don't know i think there's some want to have children we love you but you're wrong (laughs) yeah (laughs) so like yeah i i i don't necessarily enjoy children very much i'll i'll cop to that i'd wear a shirt that says baby hater I I don't know. I the context um, in which I especially hate children is when I have to be in an office and some pregnant coworker has a baby and then brings that baby in and shoves it in everybody's faces while I'm trying to work. And if I don't sound and act really excited about my day, yeah, my work day, my day that I already hate because I'm at a job. Right. Is now interrupted by something I hate, possibly even worse, which is the expectation of having to pretend like I'm really excited to see and hold and touch a baby. I'm not. <laughs> Get that baby away from me. This is a place of work. Why is it here? You're supposed to be on maternity leave. Um, yeah. I I mean, for me, like, I it goes much much more quickly to like end end game discussion, which is that. Um, at what point is so at what point do we live in such a utopia that it's conscionable to bring children into existence right go and then the question of course is like you know you're not going to get there unless there are people to do the work to do that um but then of course you're stuck with the conundrum of me willfully bringing someone into existence against their will or without any say if without them having any say in order for them to sacrifice themselves for the greater good of some future paradise where it is right. then acceptable to bring children into existence. Um, yes. And you know, and good thinking anyway, it's I, for me, that's the discussion. Like the practicality of day to day is like, I'm not running around advocating that people terminate all their, I mean, you know, like, I don't know. Do you like, I'm not, I I'm happy to tell people how I think they should live. It doesn't mean that I'm right necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you how to live and I don't know if I'm right or not, Right. <laughs> but it's okay. Anyway, sorry. I feel like I derailed not you a authorities bit. on anything. No, not at all. This so, is like the whole point le, of the conversation. So who is this? So, uh, the philosopher, uh, what's his name? Who is this baby hating philosopher? Yes. Right. <laughs> 
the baby hating philosopher is David Benatar. Okay, David Benatar um, hates babies. Got it. Hates babies. Got it. Check. Other <laughs> philosophers. I'm reading now. I'm quoting yeah. from. Yeah. Other philosophers likewise regard potential people as subject to harm, while still others argue that dead people might likewise be harmed. And still there has been considerable theorizing of the question of whether it is worse to do harm or to allow harm. But some philosophers point out that not all harms entail moral responsibility or hence culpability. Right. Others argue that in the context of punishment, it may be moral to intentionally cause harm. Still others point out that moral moral responsibility for harms when it exists sometimes attaches not to individuals individuals but to collectives yeah despite the centrality of harm for moral and political philosophy and for metaphysics philosophers have paid virtually no attention to harm reduction right <laughs> this cracks me up yeah um it's just not something that philosophers have bothered to write about which is crazy so this person who wrote this um philosophical text did searches and found over three thousand um hits uh in a search engine on the web of science, which like, so these are academic databases of, of uh -huh. writing. Yeah. Um, so like 3000 or more harm reduction hits over 2,700 of which concerning addiction, the use of intoxicants or HIV AIDS. Um, and that's in a like science and medicine search by contrast, only about a quarter of the philosophy articles on harm reduction concern addiction, intoxicants, or HIV AIDS. So when philosophers do bother to write about harm reduction, they're not writing about it in the same way that everybody else is. Right. Um, the remaining <clears throat> studies explored such topics as abortion, prostitution, domestic abuse, climate change, physician aid in dying, juvenile sexual activity, and both male and female circumcision, INGO resource allocation, and a range of ethical and political issues. So while philosophers have been slow to take up HR as an object of philosophical study, what little philosophical attention to the concept has been remarkably novel, extending the application of harm reduction approaches well beyond the standard social and health sciences scholarship, which is like, this is fucking mind blowing. Why isn't anybody working on any of this? Right. So philosophy apparently is really, really good at thinking about stuff in broad terms and has started to think and apply the concepts of harm reduction to areas not contained within the normal practical realm of harm reduction which is usually medicine and like public health right right so i'm all about this i'm super excited about this because this is basically like i could spend the rest of my time in grad school just working on this particular thing and i was like uh like i just remember in um the movie little miss sunshine yes they're sitting at the dinner table and like the dad is there with Steve Carell's uncle character and the whole family sitting there eating and Steve Carell's explaining about how he lost his job as a professor and uh -huh. has been like disgraced and why he was in the hospital because he tried to kill himself because he was so depressed over like losing his relationship with his one of his grad students who then started dating his like competitor in the oh, right. philosophical arena. Yes. And he's like... Um, well, and he's explaining this to a child, this, the kid who's yes. competing in the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. And he's like, so then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And, and all of that was pretty okay until uh, the like MacArthur Genius Grants awarded Larry Braverman or Larry Sugarman or whatever his name is in the movie. Um, yeah. 
this genius grant to study Proust. And Larry Braverman is perhaps the world's second foremost Proust scholar. And the dad is like, who's the first? And he's like, that would be me, Rich. (laughs) (laughs) And I just had this like flash into the future if I end up publishing anything about this topic or working on harm reduction in philosophy for any extended period of time. I can imagine having a conversation similar to what we're having right now, but with a less interested party and being like, yes, yeah. and can you believe it? Like, I mean, this other person over here is writing about it, but they're wrong for these reasons, blah, blah, blah. And like when I started out doing this, like nobody was doing it and blah, blah, blah. And like I can just see myself having a conversation with a semi-involved uh-huh. Semi paying attention person who's like, and who did all? So who did all of the research on it? Like that would be me. <laughs> this is why I'm upset. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, there's like all of this really interesting. Like, so harm reduction is an approach that seeks to reduce the harmful effects of usually stigmatized behaviors, and so harm reduction has been all about helping people that other people reject for moral reasons. Like, you're a drug user, you don't deserve X or Y type of support, right? Yeah. You're, a, you're an AIDS patient. You, like, I don't know if people listening to this remember, like, the fucking 1980s when AIDS became a problem. I don't know the ages of people listening to this. I remember, like, people being very angry at people with AIDS. Yes. Because yes. it was seen as a moral failing that you got sick. And so any of these situations that are viewed in within that are public health issues, but for some reason have been moralized yeah. are rife for uh, harm reduction practice. Right. Right. Um, right. And so like there's kind of, there's four, um, there's four, sort of principles to harm reduction so far that have been discussed and like there was somebody named marlatt who wrote about this so the first one is that um you're talking about treating harm reduction treats public health like it's like issues of public health as though they're issues of public health and not criminal issues right um so harm reduction views like people who use injection drugs injected drug users as people who are just people with a situation um and the situation is a health concern not a crime concern not a criminal right right it's like one of the reasons that um i think needle programs are well it's it's why needle programs it it's how you try to argue for needle programs because you're addressing it as a a public health concern Right. You're like the moral, the moral issues of it and all of that are set aside and you're like, there is a public pandemic. It doesn't matter. Like the AIDS, the AIDS problem, the AIDS pandemic was the same issue. Yes. It's like, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you personally think that they should be doing the activities they're doing. There's a mass portion of our public that are suffering from this health issue. Right. And you being morally outraged about it doesn't change that fact. Right. That doesn't accomplish anything. Yeah. Um, the second principle. So treating treating these issues like public health issues instead of cr- criminal complaints is a big thing. Yeah. The second thing is that um, abstinence is recognized as an ideal outcome. So like, hey, it would be great if everybody just stopped injecting drugs, but right. that's not going to happen. And so 
harm reduction models accept alternatives that reduce harm rather than eliminating harm. It's like if we if we're never going to get there, we'll take what we can get and we'll keep working on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the this is in line with our philosophy of this podcast, which is like, don't let perfection be the enemy of good enough. That's right. That's absolutely fucking right. Yes. I mean, this is kind of like in some ways, the whole concept of harm reduction is just waiting to be developed and designed. Like yeah. It, it hasn't really ha- it hasn't been designed outside of these really specific situations yet. So. uh the third principle that Marlat identified about harm reduction so far is that it's a bottom-up approach based on addict advocacy in the case of like injection drug users mm-hmm. rather than a top-down policy established by addiction professionals, which means that, and this is the fourth principle, it promotes low-threshold access to services as an alternative to traditional high-threshold approaches. So in other words, it's like... It's very nearby. Like all of the practical considerations of harm reduction are things that anybody can do. You just start doing them. Um, It's not like an academic process. So like abolition is not effective in reducing harms. Right. Not from prostitution, not from people having sex with people who are not the people people expect them to have sex with. Like not... I mean, nothing. So, like, I really think that there's a lot of room. And Shannon Dea, who wrote this piece that I'm reading from, also feels like there's a huge amount of room for expanding the type of harms that harm reduction addresses. Mm -hmm. Like, we could apply this all over the place. If we had a set of principles to work from, Or like a set of basic, like if we could build out a philosophy of harm reduction, then you can take that and apply it anywhere that there's a problem that you need to fix that you can't solve overnight. Right. And um, the author here is advocating, like I'll just read this a little bit, the lack of broader theorizing about harm reduction means that there has never been a programmatic call to increase the scope of harm reduction applications beyond so-called vices and this person specifically says that philosophers could change that and i have to agree i think this is exactly the type of work that philosophers should do Mm -hmm. and it's like in the purview of philosophers to do this type of work um and they haven't been and that's fucking bullshit but that's all right because that'll give me a job (laughs) so um (laughs) uh I, one part that I really wanted to talk about that I thought was like I had never considered anything like this before, but it just really like turned my crank when I read it. So um, a philosopher whose last name is Weinstock talks about honoring and promoting values and those being different from each other in this way. Uh, so when you honor a value you like hold on to it and you defend it and you act as he says unyieldingly even if doing so results in the value being realized to a lesser degree overall mm-hmm. so when you honor a value it's like non-fucking negotiable right right uh when you promote a value um the difference is that you're doing it's kind of a compromise um and when you promote a value, it's like you are willing to do something that looks counterintuitive at first if it means that you are going to get the outcome that's 
desired in the end. So like, for example, people who are pro-life argue that they want to eliminate abortion. Right. And yet one of the best ways to do that is to make abortion legal, which seems counterintuitive, but access to safe, accessible abortion correlates with the lowest abortion rates. Right, right. Like there's all these other things you can do that would actually be honoring the value of preserving, like preventing or or reducing abortions, right? Like right. promoting um, birth control methods and um, safe sex and all of these other things and right. access to legal health care, especially for women, but basically like sexual health. Um, right. And yeah. so, right, I see what you're saying. Sure. So Which, there's a... Yeah. Oh, but but specifically, it's about actually a, like a lot, like providing um, access to safe, legal abortions, which is exactly antithesis to what you're trying to do, Right. actually reduces the number of abortions. Right. Right. Gotcha. Yes, exactly. So yep. um, Weinstock arg has a bit in here about sex work, too. So Weinstock right. urges that someone who opposes sex work on the basis of the value of dignity yeah. nonetheless promotes that value, the value of dignity, by supporting legal regulated sex work in which sex workers are spared the worst indignities. Mm -hmm. um, which I found really interesting. And yeah. so... Uh, I really, I just really like the idea of the difference between honoring and promoting a value because I think honoring a value in a lot of cases is just a dead end. Mm -hmm. Whereas promoting values gives you a lot of like lateral working room to like decide what that looks like and how you're going to do it and how you're going to accomplish the task. And um, it also means that you're not going to become diametric falsely diametrically opposed to anybody who isn't an up or down vote in the same way that you are mm -hmm. right like every i'm so tired of everything being reduced to like a false dichotomy where like like this happens in america all of the time weird things because we expect everything to get a top uh, an up or down vote from everybody and we expect everybody to have an opinion on everything and because you can't have an opinion on everything it's exhausting and impossible you're f reduced to basically giving a quick up or down vote on something if you're asked for your opinion or you can refrain and say i don't have an opinion on this or i haven't thought about it enough to have an informed opinion i'm not giving you an answer but i don't think most people do that i think most people feel pressure to know things and then they just stake a claim and like what ends up happening is when you treat everything like it's a false dichotomy, you draw a line in the sand between everybody on the planet or everybody involved in the conversation and you force people onto one side or the other of it, which is a really like non not a nuanced way of thinking about things. And then what happens by association is it's like, well, for example, Democrats equal liberal equal tax spending, equal social justice warriors, equal not racist, equal like um, er, less racist, equal like uh, <clears throat> um, I don't know, just like a, there, there's all these things that get kind of like lumped together in the bubble. And then the opposite side of it is like conservative, Republican, um, religious, like no taxes stuff and then anyone who happens to be on the side of one or the other group 
in a like in a in a very popular way like in a group that's very popular and people know all about it and gets a lot of press and it's like like an ideology that people understand those people will start liking or up or down voting things too and eventually everything just gets lumped in so you have weird associations between things that have nothing to do with each other and you're not allowed to like things that fall on the wrong side of the line based on some other association right right yeah. And so, like, when I think about that, which is where I see a lot of, like, social issues and even public health issues, like, public health has become incredibly intertwined with morality in America and in, in lots of places, but I live here, so I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, that m- morality usually comes from a specific place that tells you what your morality is. As opposed to ethics, which are like you can work through the ethics of something without a desired outcome or without an affiliation with a way of viewing the world. Morals usually come from like a church or like an authority figure like your parents or something like that. Right. And when you start to link up morals with things that are not like it's incoherent for me to think about drug use is a moral issue like yeah it doesn't say anything about your character as a person like everybody uses drugs it's just some of you use them when they come from a doctor which you view as a legitimized source right some people use them from other sources whatever those sources may be you can grow some things in your backyard you can make your own you can buy them from somebody who's not a doctor like there's a lot of things but the line between legitimate and illegitimate Mm -hmm. I do not think is well described. And but like if somebody takes up the mantle that it's moralized one way or another and the way that it's moralized is within a set of morals that's already attached to another position that people have politically or socially on something like then she gets really fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, it's. uh... And I feel like harm reduction, if there was an actual philosophy behind it, you could like teach people and talk about and hammer at and get better and better so it works for people like i feel like you could remove some of the weird false dichotomies because you would be taking the language out of the argument that has been hammered on and beaten to death for so long uh and you can have an entirely different conversation about stuff that's been going on forever right right um i don't know so like like harm reduction is aimed at situations where there is unavoidable harm that is also reducible and where removal of the problem could cause even more problems than the initial harm itself, mm-hmm. like the drug war, right? Like it used to be people were just addicted to the opioids they got from their doctor. Now they're going to jail for it. Right. And that's a jail and prison sentences, especially with the way that they impact um, people of color more than white people are like they're when you weigh out the consequences of creating a drug war that was intended to eliminate illegal drug use, you effectively, uh, when these things happen, they're largely just through criminalization. We want to stop this problem that makes us uncomfortable, so we're going to criminalize everybody with the problem. I feel well, like criminalization has been... It's such it it's never been a good solution. Like it doesn't ever, ever solve it <laughs> if your goal is truly harm reduction, which is to say you want to reduce the harm on society by the behavior like something that's going on, criminalizing yeah. it never accomplishes that. Nope. 
like it, it's just every single example shows that what it does is it ends up punishing society. Like all you're doing is right. like, you know, punishing yourself, assuming that you subscribe ascribe to the idea that, you know, we're in this together. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Like there's a, we might get to it. There's a, par- a point in here, which Shannon day um, talks about the work that Angela Davis did on prison abolition. Yeah. And Angela Davis has something really interesting to say about harm reduction that is really cool. But like bef- we haven't gotten there yet and I am going to misquote it if I'd say it without it in front of me. So bear okay. with me. Sure. Um, so like what's interesting is that this philosopher Shannon Davis says in short, neither Weinstock, who we were just yeah. talking about, uh, nor I offer a foolproof method of deciding when to use harm reduction. Mm hmm. As more philosophers and political theorists begin to work on harm reduction, they will no doubt work to identify such a method, certainly a salutary goal. However, it is possible that an, the, that no knockdown method will be found because of the very thorny nature of harm reduction. Um, so this part I like really jumped out at me. No particular justification is required for harm reduction interventions when they're paired with uncontroversial behaviors. Right. So we only cite intractability and seek to mount reasons when HR interventions are proposed for harms attendant upon controversial behaviors. So if you're not doing something that has some moral gut reaction uh, attached to it, Mm -hmm. people aren't going to care if people are trying to do harm reduction processes around you and for you and with you because they don't have... If they didn't have a moral opinion about what you were doing, they wouldn't have an opinion at all. Right. Is that, I mean, I'm in my mind, this just kind of popped into my head. I was like thinking of an example where I was like, okay, so we just talked about like AIDS and abortion as being, or drug use, those three things having prostitution and prostitution, sex sex work. All of these things have um, potentially controversial behavior issues, which means that. The application of harm reduction um, is is uh, is controversial. Or it causes it 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 asks for uh, justification, right? Um, to yeah. the greater you know to the greater right. population. Whereas, yeah. and then I was like, oh, but then you know what would be an example where you could have harm reduction that doesn't have that? And I was like, oh, like you could have a pandemic. And then I was like, motherfucker, like we've got COVID, yep. and it became something that should never have had any behavior issue because like any kind of lumped, con- it got lumped onto the side yeah of republicans when they were in power yeah when the pandemic became a problem and then everyone not on that side of that broad stroke side of things was forced by definition to take the opposing position right because we only let people have a position and the exact opposite of that position in this country and so then harm reduction behaviors like for instance asking people to wear masks suddenly becomes something you have to justify right so like there's got to be a way to do this that doesn't become immediately susceptible to binary politicization and moralizing right and i i mean the I, I think that's part of the issue of the way maybe our politics work here where it's like first past the post where it, it's it's a binary decision right and so if you can force everything into a binary decision and you can get enough of the yeses on your side 
for whatever it is and you don't care. You don't care if you know, like you take a read and you're like, on balance, if I can force abortion to be a binary choice and I can get everybody to focus on that, I know that, you know, 60% of the nation are going to agree that terminating pregnancies might be bad. Right. Okay, great. Yep. All I got to do is force that to a binary decision. And now yep. I'm always going to win elections because yes. everyone's going to be like, yeah, but I don't want to vote for murdering babies. Like, it's yes. not even that they're like terminating pregnancies. They're like, Baby murder is bad. That's an issue that no one's ever going to debate. So let's just make it about that and we're done. Um, Right. Yeah. They're gobbling up. Politicians are gobbling up anything, any noun or verb or adjective in the world. Yeah. Because they want that to translate into votes that they now own. Right. And so it just becomes, you know, shit that's like super nuanced and like very individual is now on the national stage and everyone's deciding on a yes or a no. Yes. And the way to like corral people into this scenario is to get them to like things on Facebook and then scrape the data of what people like and then associate those likes with for your side or against your side and then work on individually targeting individual people about their individual positions on individual subjects. Yep. Which is fucking crazy. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Like, it's genius. Yeah. But it's so insidious. Yeah. Um, So here's something that I starred because I put like liberal versus conservative in the margin. What is it? Um, For a range of paired behaviors and harms, respondents preferred prevalence reduction approaches to harms paired with behaviors towards which they felt moral outrage. So in other words, prevalence reduction approaches translates to we're going to force you to stop doing whatever you're doing because we hate it. Uh huh. Morally. And then uh, harm reduction approaches to harms paired with behaviors towards which they felt no moral outrage. So in situations where people don't have like a reason from their church or from politics to hate another person, like in those situations where they don't feel an emotional reaction to the situation, they don't they are not going to argue about harm reduction at all. Right. Like they'll be like, that sounds great. It sounds like you're working to solve a problem. Right. right? But if it's like abortion, no, you got to end it outlawed. Right. Cause I don't like it. Right. Right. So <laughs> that's yeah. interesting. Yes. Um, so, Oh, I found the part about Angela Davis. Okay. Uh, this specifically talks about how, so this is what kind of what I was getting at was saying like this would change the conversations in a lot of areas maybe. Yeah. Or I think there's a lot of potential for it. I, I'm not saying that I think it will absolutely do that. Um, so if so if no universal way to determine what harms are susceptible for harm reduction intervention mm-hmm. exists like if we don't work on this then we're always going to have to like have all these back background considerations for whether or not we're going to have to do the math every single time about whether or not it makes sense to apply harm reduction principles for a given scenario or problem right right so right. like we're always going to have to ask quoting here is the harm in question self-directed or other directed is the proposed harm reduction mechanism itself causing a harm, albeit a lesser one than would otherwise occur? Is the harm caused by an agent or an institution or something else? If by an agent or institution, is the same agent or institution or a different one proposing to undertake the harm reduction intervention? 
So the last question invites us to analyze the ways in which HR mechanisms, harm reduction mechanisms, like other kinds of reform, can serve to reinscribe unjust systems of power. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. Like yeah. I, I like thinking about that. So Angela Davis says that the incarceration of criminals was conceived from the start as a reform of earlier inhumane methods of punishment. And so like prison is the the aggregate harm caused by inflicting prison on people is significantly worse than the harm inflicted by the people that we imprisoned in the first place. Um, by supporting. So Angela Davis argues that. If reform is, in fact, constitutive of the prison, then by supporting prison reform, we are supporting the prison. So this is also like I this article got or this piece, this text got me all excited because I have also been a prison abolitionist for a really long time. Yeah. And it's hard to describe to people like, what the fuck? Um, right. Because that sounds crazy. And it's totally not not crazy. Uh and why people are like, we need to just abolish prisons instead of trying to reform them. Because if you have a problem with the concept of a prison and what prisons do, then you shouldn't work to reform the prison. You should work to get rid of the prison instead of doing things that actually support the continued existence of the prison, like mm -hmm. reforming it. Right. right? Which, um, So HR intervention risks reinforcing the underlying causes of harm, which means you have to be sure before you do it that you're not making the situation worse. Um, what I thought was a really interesting, like, takeaway from this that applies to all sorts of areas of life and problem solving that don't necessarily have anything to do with prisons, um, is this sort of the, the, the type of thinking around abolishing prisons mm -hmm. and how it's po quite possibly an impossible goal, but it's still something that should be worked towards and here's why, right? Yeah. The choice between abolition and reform may not be possible. While opponents of prisons may prefer abolition, in the meantime, current prisoners are suffering inhumane treatment that could be ameliorated via reforms. Mm -hmm. Davis argues that properly understanding the complexity of the situation helps to dissolve the dilemma. So to think about prisons simply as prisons susceptible to abolition, reform, or status quo totally misses the point of the situation. Instead, Angela Davis works to prize apart the various entangled organizations and practices that together make up the prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And therefore adopting a less monolithic approach to prisons allows opponents of prisons to conceive of an array of alternatives rather than that single alternative of abolition. Hmm. So we could apply this in other areas, the abortion debate, for example, one side is like, we want legalized abortion on demand, which is the side that I fall on. Mm -hmm. And then the other side is like, we want abortion never, ever, ever for any reason ever. Right. And those right. are the like far ends of the argument. But there's still a dividing line, no matter how close you get to one side or the other. Like both of the viewpoints are diametrically opposed about what to do about the abortion question. Right. Right. But if we do what they say here and adopt a less monolithic approach to abortion, yeah, it may allow opponents of abortion or proponents of abortion to conceive of an array of alternatives rather than a single alternative. Right, right. Which I think this is kind of like when people are like, I don't understand why we can't just work across the aisle and everybody needs to get along and we need to have like 
better discussions and discourse. And it's like, well, then you need to actually do that. Like you need to actually do the work and step away from the list of associations that have been forced down your throat from people telling you what to think. Right. Right. Like you can't just have an up down vote on everything. You have to like come up with some alternatives to that. Otherwise we're never going to get anywhere. Otherwise at some point this is all just going to turn really bloody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the w- one could argue that it already has. Yeah, it's just going to get bloodier. Yeah. Right? Um, I I like the less monolithic approach to things. I think that's so important. Like everybody's trying to solve everything all at once, and it's like, well, that's why the shit's broken because that's impossible. You're going right. to fail all of the time. Right. Um. So Shannon Dea says I have argued here that such broadening of the scope of Harm reduction is desirable and is indeed one of the contributions that philosophers can make to harm reduction research. And I'm like, well, let's do it. Like, I'm excited about this. So I just wanted to share it because I thought this was really, like, it was just shocking to me that, like, this isn't already a thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... How has has philosophy ignored this for 30 years? I don't know. It's pretty amazing. Um, I mean... I don't know. I, I, yeah. I can't speak to that particular question. I just think it's Ned, pretty... How I, did we get here? I need to know. You yes. have to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. I, yeah, so um, harm reduction. Look it up. It's really great. It is It's it is really interesting. Um, I'm really interested in how... Uh, <sighs> I, I think you kind of brought up something that was kind of interesting to me too earlier, um, which was just sort of the the source of moral value. Because um, one of the things I was thinking about in terms of um, when you get to the question of um, antinatalism. Yes. Uh, no more babies. <laughs> no more babies. Is a, it, like part of it is a question of... Um, you know, what, what constitutes harm? Um, you know, some people have like, even in my own life, like I've had some negative experiences. Like I have this like horrific sailing experience. I can't remember if we've actually, um, if we ever actually did the podcast where I told the story, maybe I I don't think so. I think you were never up for it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I had this horrific sailing experience, but on balance, um, if I had not, if I hadn't done it, but I knew what it was going to be, I would have chosen to do it anyway because there were such great things that came out of it. Um, like I formed this really great friendship with my friend Fran, and I learned a lot about myself and my ability and capabilities of sailing and all of these other things. Um, and even though, like much of it was, you know, spending time on a boat with a really miserable man. Um, not Fran, but somebody else. Um, <laughs> right, not Fran, a different yeah, man. <laughs> a different man. Um, and and the thing about it is, like, it it was. It, my point being is that that when we talk about, you know, I the neo neo natal anti natalism is. Mm-hmm. It, it, you can't just reduce it to this yes or no question, right? In my mind, right. Um, it's, you know, one factor is, of course, the non-consenting nature of it. Yeah. Um, and that's a strong, I mean, for me, that's the bulk of the argument. Me too. Um, I haven't read, I, I bought his book. 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see. Argument. Yeah. But yeah, so far, without having read his book, I'm with you on that. Because the issue also is even even if we had reached a point of utopia where it was like, you know, it's it's non-debatable. It's just life is like peak amazing. Um, it's so individual what that means for people that it's like it doesn't matter. Like if I don't have the choice to consent to that, then it's non-consenting. You don't know how that's going to land for me. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's for sure one of the hardest things, like the hardest pills to swallow, like setting aside all of the other issues of like Christian Catholicism sort of beliefs and stuff. Just just the issue of like heaven, like that sounds miserable to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's it doesn't. <laughs> you know it doesn't land with me in a way that i'm like well that's great i'm i'm glad i'm working towards that um mm-hmm. and i you know i understand there's you know depths there but um anyway i i don't mean to turn it into that kind of discussion or debate but um, there was this super funny tv show with, yeah um it was like a mini series or whatever with um Oh my God! Hater taught me different things to different people. Oh, um, with um, well, uh, Fred Armisen. Fred Armisen. Yes. Um, so it was Fred Armisen, and um, oh my God, ah, I can't remember her fucking name. She had her own variety show. It was great. She's been on a bunch of stuff. Why am I blanking on her name? She plays Kamala Harris. Oh, um. Oh, on Saturday night, and, and she was in Idiocracy. Um, yes. I mean, that's not where she's most famously known. For, I sound but... like my mom now. I was watching this movie <laughs> with some people in it. Uh, My oh, Maya Rudolph. Maya Rudolph. Maya Rudolph. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so they were a married couple, and yeah. then they die, and they go to the afterlife and find out that they're like both there with each other. And she's like, "No, no, my version of heaven is like diff- different people, though." <laughs> like I, I lived with you in life, yes. but now I get to go to heaven. And so it's this thing about how like his version of heaven she's in, but her version of heaven he's not in. Uh-huh. And, like, it cracks me up because I'm like, this is the like right off the bat, the concept of heaven falls apart for me because I'm like, well, who's heaven though? Uh-huh. Because I am not going to be in heaven if I have to spend it with some people. Yeah, no kidding. Um <laughs> I always thought that was funny. So then they made a whole TV show out of it, and I was like, "Oh, good." Oh. I oh man, it was super funny too. We were uh, in class the other day, and um, our professor played uh, an excerpt of the Good Place, where they're like in the trolley and they're crashing into people, and there's like blood and gore everywhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> and a bunch of people in class had never seen the show, and there was no like preface to this it was just like he just started it at the beginning and we're all virtually in class so it's like right. all of a sudden on our video screen there's just this playing and then like immediate like blood and gore like oh what the hell is going on and i was like this is per this is perfect this is perfect for this conversation about how absolutely psychotic utilitarianism uh-huh. <laughs> is <laughs> oh my god oh so we should talk about that too unless you want to talk about the game that utilitarian game the no game no we could we'll get into that in a minute tell me talk about that okay. first um oh that's it i don't know i was just going to mention that game because oh okay problem um uh I watched him do the whole thing today. Yes. 
so if you've been listening, if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, um, or you've only listened to our most popular episode and this one, uh, our most popular episode <laughs> being yeah. somebody's going to die. Um, you may have made it long enough to be disappointed, to f- disappointingly finding out that it's uh, it's actually about a philosophical question. Well, it's actually it's actually ostensibly it's about a philosophical question, but really it's just about some uh, like basic mental masturbation. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. So somebody's gonna die is uh, is where we talk about the trolley problem a little bit and some of the issues with. Um, even bringing it up as a question in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so recently we stumbled across a YouTube video of a, um, just somebody, uh, somebody who um, was playing a game that was written to kind of explore the trolley problem. And I'm going to um, tell you about that right now, or I'm going to look up, let me find that video really quick. And then, um, yeah, like the guy is a gamer, and then somebody passes on this game to him or whatever. That's this trolley game. Yeah, like he's it's so the trolley game is um, Doctor Trolley's problem, and you can find it on Steam. And I think we've mentioned it in another podcast already because we've been kind of coming and going yeah. around on it, on it a little bit. Um, right. I'm, a lot of confluence of like hilarious shit lately, like. We didn't intend to talk about these topics this much, but they just keep coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in so many formats. Uh, yeah. So, um, so anyway, so the 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 YouTube channel is called Northern Northern Million, I believe. Uh, Northern Northern Lion, Northern Lion. Um, anyway, and so he's got he's actually got a couple of videos on the Doctor Trolley problem, apparently. Um. But this one is titled Someone Turned the Trolley Problem into a Game. Um, and this he played it about a month ago, so it's pretty recent. I guess hmm. that game was um, was recently recently released. I'm going to look. Okay, so 2019 is looks like when it was released. Um, yeah, so it was released April 25th, 2019. You can find it on Steam. It's called Dr. Trolley's Problem. Um, their tagline is pretty great. Uh, Dr. Trolley's Problem brings the classic philosophical quandaries of the trolley problem to life and asks you to make life or death decisions on the fly. Explore your moral fiber in ways you never imagined or asked for. And that last part is kind of why it's a great description because yes. that's the issue, right? Like nobody asked yeah. for this. Um, well, I certainly yeah, didn't. Like, in what scenario would you pop into a, like, spontaneously pop into a situation where, like, you get there and you have these choices of, like, murdering these people or murdering these people because you don't have a choice? Like, what? So, if you watch the video, I love how he really quickly sort of undermines the problem in exactly the way that it is in exactly the way that makes it not a very good question to ask and not a, not actually a very good philosophical question. Like it's not actually a very good thought experiment. Um, and the reason for that is he quickly just, just arrives at the conclusion that if you chose to stand on the tracks and I take no action and you're going to get run over, not my problem. Right. Like your dumbass was the one who wandered onto some train tracks. Yeah. Like why are you standing there? Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's some moments where he he makes some decisions where it's like, OK, well, I'm not going to kill anybody if I do act. So I'm going to act. Um, but otherwise, like generally every decision he makes is based on the idea of are you on the side of the tracks where the trolley was going to go? Then you're going to get run over. 
if someone it, if my action involves the death of anyone else then fuck you um right it gets really interesting too because after he takes an action he gets like a little a little pop-up of feedback of what other people did <clears throat> right like right of all the other people who played this game how many of them chose one track over the other and what it ends up revealing of course is like terrible things about like like 95 percent of people let the woman die right. of the man. <laughs> yeah just shit that's fucked up in ways that you're like like people actively chose to kill the woman over the man like 95 percent of the time or right um, and they yeah. actively chose to kill people identified as drug users or criminals over yes. people yeah. not identified as such in like overwhelming numbers one of my one of my favorite scenarios that he was talking about was um there's so there's a um there's a person on life support and the computer that's controlling the life support is sitting on the tracks where the trolley's gonna go <laughs> and then on the spare tracks where if he decides to take action there's somebody there who's gonna get run over right so right. his choice is to take no action and have the computer smashed that will then kill the person on life support or push the button and kill the other innocent bystander and i love his thinking which is just like like if you decided to build your life support computer on trolley tracks that's on you buddy like we're done there's no debate after this why is there a life support machine in the middle of a train track (laughs) exactly (laughs) this is not my problem (laughs) i have so many questions right I mean, that's like the thing about utilitarianism. That, like, I I think it's a. It, uh, I think the problem with utilitarianism is when people try to turn it into like an overarching life unifying theory. Right. Like, listen, this is just a tiny little like hex key in the toolbox of solutions to worldly problems. Like, you should not turn this into like an ethos or like uh-huh. a whole a whole like superstructure for how to operate on every decision in your entire life because like any decision can kind of be turned into a this or that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like I mean and there are plenty of like I think there's a lot of public health decisions that appear to be trolley problems because you're like, well, so- people are going to die from the pandemic. So how do we how do we minimize the number of people we allow to die? You know, it just goes, spirals off from there. Anyway, yeah. but like uh <clears throat> it's just not that broadly applicable and it's 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 total mental masturbation. It's the game of would you rather. Yeah, it is would you rather. That's exactly what it is. It's it's nothing more than that. It's if you've played that game at all, you know that it has very little value in life. Like A, yeah. those choices don't actually come up. And B, Ever. when they do, none of what you did before has any bearing none of the the would you rather game you were playing before has any bearing on the decision you're about to make right it's not like you can practice for these decisions it's like you're just going to make a value decision at the time when it comes up and you're just that's all you can do it answers the age-old question of whether people make value decisions it turns out they do Turns out they do all the time. Lots. And you're probably going to be uncomfortable with those values once you see them put in motion. Right. <laughs> Whoever you are. Right. Yeah. This doesn't exactly represent your. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, trolley problems. Hilarious. Uh, it's funny to me that like more people don't just stop the entire trolley problem. Like, I'm sorry. What? Like, I have. How did we get here? Yeah. Who was in charge right before I showed up? Yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. I'm not taking this on as my problem. <laughs> yeah. 
I had nothing to do with this before you like magically popped me into existence. Right. That one, I think like there's unintentional hilarity in the trolley problem. Yes. That, like, yeah. I mean, uh, people who are funny have seized on immediately, of course, and like made a whole television show out of it in right. terms of the good place. But like, um, it, this is something that I hope to also, so I want to exist at the intersection of like the harm reduction movement yeah. and philosophy and visual art, like art yes. of, of whatever kind. I'm not like into making movies, but like I make art. Yeah. And um, comedy. Like there's not enough art or comedy uh-huh. or harm reduction in philosophy. And so right. I'm just going to mix it all in myself, I guess. Yeah. Philosophy does not have a sense of humor. Uh, that's too bad. It's okay. Yeah. Um, I think that it, like... Catholics are also hilarious and they don't have a sense of humor. The fact that they lack a sense of humor is part of what makes them such an easy target. Right. <laughs> so I think philosophy suffers the same fate. Like if you guys weren't so serious, you wouldn't be such a huge target for things that you hate. Right. Like comedy, yes. like making fun of making fun of things. Um, there have been a number of comics, like one of them, Dead Philosophers in Heaven. Yeah. Is like outrageously funny. Oh, it's funny. so good. Yeah. Um, so, and they stopped making comics. And so I was like, well, somebody has got to pick up the torch here. And I, um, I'm kind of excited about all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I am too. I agree. That's great. Um, well, I have, we, I mean, we've reached an hour. Should we, should we call that? Um, yeah, you know? we can call that. Yeah. Do we have, do you have a tip for living well in hell or should we do a color of the day? <laughs> Fucking read a book. Like, read a bunch of books. Read lots and lots and lots of books and stop, like, stop thinking you know everything. I don't know anything. That's why I read all the time. Yeah. I find out new things all of the time. I know so little about so many things. Read a book. Do you think... Also, yeah, there's not a lot of money in books. They're not sexy. And so you can believe that a lot of times when people are writing books, at least currently, they're doing it because they actually have an idea about something that they want to share and not because they want to get on TV. Right. right. <laughs> so, like, if you're concerned about where your information is coming from or, like, sifting through what's crazy and what's not and what's, like, propaganda and what's not, yeah. you're going to have probably an easier time doing that with books because books kind of slow all that down a little. Uh-huh. Read a book. That's my advice. That's my tip. Read a book. All right. All right. I like that. <laughs> I think that's a good Do one. Do we have a color of the day? Um, yeah, we have a color of the day. I'm just uh I'm just getting it now from the research department. Hold on a second. Okay, great. Tell um, them we'd appreciate it if they could come up with it a little quicker. Yeah, okay. Like so I'd like to come into these things really prepared. Yes. Um okay, so the color of the day. Um well, they just had to re- retrieve it from the database because they, they've they've already done most of the days um, so far. Uh, so the color of the day is Xanadu. That's X-A-N-A-D-U. Oh, my God. This is in line with our theme of um, Olivia Newton-John 2021. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, because we didn't get around to 2020, but we're going to do it this year. We're going to do it this year. <laughs> Have to believe we're magic. Yes. So, uh, Xanadu is RGB values of one one five or one fifteen, one thirty four, one twenty. So, um, if you're, uh, if you're, I thought about how we might also convey this. Um, you could, like, if you type into Google, um, 
pound sign or octothorpe seven three eight six seven eight that's hashtag for those fuckers who still don't understand what, what i'm talking about so if uh, you yeah. type into google the number uh you basically hashtag seven three eight six seven eight you will be able to look at the color we're talking about now so um this is the color of the day this is like our basically our top design tip um and if you're looking at this you'll want to uh how would you describe this color so um hmm, i would say oh where did my thing get out of here get out of here i can't see the color now i can see it okay so this is this reminds me of the color that my mom painted in her bedroom uh-huh and the reason that she painted this color, my mom's real into dusty colors. So okay. dusty sage or dusty rose yeah. or dusty blue toilet paper in your bathroom. I don't oh. know. But like it's just dusty, boring colors is what my uh-huh. mom was all into. And this is definitely like a very dark, dusty sage. Yeah. But it's like if my mom had put it on the wall, she would have been like, well, now it feels like a cave in here. Right. Yeah. Like it's got it's got a lot of green. Um or more green than anything else. Uh, but it is, it is, I, I'd almost think of it as like a slate green. Yeah. Um, it's like slate gray, but green instead of gray. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like that's kind of, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, this it's is a color dark. your mom would be really happy to have in the guest bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> bathroom. Maybe, maybe the bathroom would be better. Right. Right. Um, like maybe an accent wall accent wall yeah like this is like if you had slate gray tile that had um moss growing on it this is what it would look like maybe if you wanted people in your home to get the impression of the color green but you're actually afraid of the color green yes. xanadu would be your green. xanadu is for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep yeah xanadu is for you all right you well terrified anyway and deeply unsettled by the color green <laughs> Try immersion therapy with Xanadu. <laughs> this is going to ease you into it. I'm um, going to ease you into green. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> ah, good. Oh, man. Um, all right. Well, anyway, if you uh, enjoy listening to this podcast and you wish to tell us that or you hate listening to this podcast and you'd also like to tell us that and you must make one of those decisions you cannot fall anywhere in the middle you must make a decision of either, either extreme love us or yeah. you hate us yeah so um given that you'll need to cast your votes either way and the way you can do that is you can email us um our executive assistant dana who could not join us today but she's been on many more of our podcasts recently um mm-hmm. so hopefully you're you've listened to some of those she's great uh anyway our executive assistant dana if you email her dana d-a-n-a at fcbm.io she'll um get your message passed on to us or your questions passed on to whoever uh whatever department you're addressing you can also um if you're if you have questions about the color of the day you can email um color at fcbm.io and our color um specialists will get back to you about any um issues you might have around that so um you know how like you can get 1-800 numbers yes i wonder if anybody's taken 1-800 fuck you yet oh um somebody must have yeah i mean they probably don't know it is that they probably use it as something else i mean that's the thing right because there's only so many because one number stands for a bunch of different letters yeah so uh but 
worth looking into. Um, <laughs> put that on the list for later. Uh-huh. Put, throw that in the incubator. Um, we'll ask Dana to look into that for us. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about setting up a voice line where people could call in and um, leave us voicemails. I might try and do that. That's uh, what I'm thinking. Yeah. So, um, anyway. Um, yeah. We are thinking anyway. the same thing once again. Once again. Yeah. So, anyway, send us an email. Um, we really do like to hear from you. Um, we know people are listening because we have... Uh, statistics to suggest that we have we know you're fucking out there we know you're out there um yeah and we you know make it interactive if you feel like it so the longer you're here without saying anything the weirder it's gonna get <laughs> right right because that's the that's what's so awkward <laughs> i was on a work phone call one time uh-huh with the people that we know yes and um <clears throat> The conversation was super weird because it went on for like 38 minutes or something out of yeah. an hour. Like it was an hour long conference call. Um, and for the first 38 minutes, there was somebody on that call who did not announce themselves who was not invited to the meeting. Really? Yes. And then somebody else at the meeting, well, so somebody asked a question. A question was asked. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and we said, well, what's the situation or what's the deal with this thing? And the person who we were on the meeting with, the opposite end of the meeting phone, yeah. said, whoa, well, that person's right here. You can just ask them. And everybody on my side of the table who was actually physically in the room with each other at the same time talking into like a little speakerphone yeah. was like, our faces just went blank. Like, what? And somebody goes, they're there with you now? <laughs> and the whole time so like and everybody on the other end of the phone acted like this was totally normal uh, like it was like it was totally normal and not at all weird that a, a person none of us knew yeah was listening in on the to and yeah. didn't invite to that conversation had been there the whole time and was just waiting for their chance to speak without being announced or being without being made announced. aware of yeah mm-hmm. it was super uh, weird yeah that's, that's don't lurk yeah <laughs> your presence <laughs> we like weirdos come be a weirdo with us yeah get it on it uh, um okay i think that's all, right. all i got all right okay bye everybody okay bye.